Well, good morning again. And as we begin uh, this this time together, I'll take care of a couple of just logistics. Uh, if you haven't picked up a Relentless Love of the Father uh, notebook that Allison so painstakingly prepared for us, please pick a couple up. Um, we made enough, I think, for one for each person. So let me just walk through what we're going to do this morning in our time together. I, I like to have a schedule and keep a schedule. Um, <clears throat> we're going to go for about an hour this morning. Thank you, Chris. God bless you, brother. Uh, we're going to go for about an hour this morning talking and laying out sort of a theological framework for what uh, we're going to practice a little bit later. After an hour, we'll take a break where we can uh, go to the restroom or we can uh, talk together a little bit, get some more snacks. There's coffee and plenty of food over here for anyone who would want that. Uh, we'll come back together after that short break, go for about another hour. We'll hear from Father Ethan and then Lindsay Harrison about some very personal and practical ways the relentless love of the Father uh, can be experienced and known. And then we'll spend some time together uh, in prayer and in practice. We are trying to record the talks. Uh, we won't record the, the practice time, but we are trying to record uh, the speaking time. Uh, and so if you have to leave... Please, feel free. I know that you're giving up part of your Saturday uh, to be here, and we'll, we'll take what you can give. Uh, so if you do have to leave, that's fine. Uh, we'll try to make those recordings available to you. Uh, <coughs> so let's begin this morning. There's a song by the Mumford and Sons. Everybody know Mumford and Sons? Anyone? Yeah? Some of us kind of like them. Mumford and Sons. One of the lyrics goes this way. You told me that I would find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul. And I have filled this void with things unreal. And all the while, my character, it steals. Darkness is a harsh term, don't you think? And yet, it dominates the things I see. Swiss, Swiss physician and author Paul Tournier once commented, we need to see that universal sickness, that innumerable throng of men and women laden down with their secrets, laden down with their fears, their sufferings, their sorrows, their disappointments, and their guilts. We need to understand how tragically alone they find themselves. They may take part in social life, may even play a leading role there, chairing club meetings, winning sports championships, going to the movies with their wives, yet what eats away at them from within is that they may live years without finding anyone in whom they have enough confidence to unburden themselves. St. Mother Teresa put it this way, the spiritual poverty of the Western world is much greater than the physical poverty of our people. You in the West have millions of people who suffer such terrible loneliness and emptiness. She also said, the biggest disease today is not leprosy or cancer. It's the feeling of being uncared for, unwanted, of being deserted and alone. These quotes from Mumford and Sons, from Dr. Tournier and St. Mother Teresa reflect upon a deep longing, a deep desire that is part of what it means to be human. 
created by the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who enjoys and delights in the company and loving fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, humans made in the image of God are made to be known and are made to know. It is not good that man should be alone, creator God said, and so he made woman. We have within us then this deep longing, this deep desire to know and be known, to love and be loved by others. Perhaps most importantly, more fundamental to our beings is the biblical notion that we are made to know and be known, to love and be loved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What happens when this longing and desire go unmet? What happens when this longing and this desire is unfulfilled? There's profound loneliness, dark emptiness. There is brokenness. And this isn't new. Perhaps what is new, however, is the level at which this is being experienced is, I think, increasing. The sort of irony of our modern world is that the more immediate communication is, the more social media platforms there are, the more friends we have on Facebook, the more isolated and alone we find ourselves in reality. Perhaps this is what lies at the root of our current cultural context and leads to the growing levels of despair, loneliness, feelings of unlovedness. Perhaps it is then that as we gather here to talk about prayer and healing, But the single greatest area of healing is the need, not in a physical area, but in a spiritual area. Not to be healed of an affliction or an affirmity, but to know the love of the Father as children adopted to Him in the Son and through the Spirit. This is fundamentally an area of the healing of an identity as children of God. In her book, the human condition. Philosopher Hannah Arendt commented that the so-called modern man and the loss of religious faith when she says the historical evidence shows that modern men were not thrown back upon the world but upon themselves. An attempt to reduce all experiences with the world as well as with other human beings to experiences between man and himself. Thrown back upon ourselves as the object of our faith Not in the rejection of a God, but in the naming of God as self, man becomes the major of all things, the definer of good. And where has that left us? Lost and lonely. In her book, Saving Jenny, author Vivian Percy recounts her battle to save her daughter from drug addiction and some self-destruction as she sought to understand what led Jenny into the path of opioid addiction Percy clearly believes that at its root was Jenny's inability to fill the loss of love in her life. Percy, with heartbreaking honesty, discusses what she had to do when Jenny was an infant and a growing child. She had to work. They lived in Manhattan, this small family, and so uh, their small family couldn't make ends meet with only one income, and so Vivian had to finish law school. She had to go to work, and she had to leave her small child, her only child, with a series of nannies, 30 nannies by the time she was six years old, all of them with varying degrees of compassion. She writes that this societal pattern, the necessity even, has robbed our children of a loving and healthy attachment to their parents, their innocence, and their authentic selves. 
They feel the unrelenting absence and grieve its devastating loss. Jenny endured much in the first 13 years of her life. She was sexually abused by two of the 30 nannies. She suffered a traumatic brain injury in an accident. And at the age of 11, she watched her father die. And all of these things played a huge role in Jenny's struggle with addiction. But one of the things that I find incredibly powerful is this description from Vivian about a conversation with her daughter. It's now 3 a.m. and Jenny has burst into my room crying, why the hell was I born? Why did you have me? You tried to get pregnant for six years. Wasn't that a sign that you were supposed to stop? I have been through too much. I am never pretty enough, smart enough, or good enough. People turn on me. No one loves me. When I'm cutting myself, I actually feel good. I cannot take the pain of not being loved anymore. Notice her cry. Notice her longing and her desire. She desperately, Jenny, desperately needed to know and to be known. She desperately needed to love and to be loved. The need for love cannot really ever be overstated, I don't think. Writing in The Science of Evil, Simon Baron Cohen, the cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen, talks about a variety of personality disorders. There's a personality disorder referred to as borderline, and it's characterized by a constant fear of abandonment, emotional pain, and loneliness, hatred of others and of, self, of themselves, impulsivity, self-destructive, highly inconsistent behavior. But where does it come from? Baron Cohen's research shows that there are genetic and physiological causes that are in play. He goes on to state the link between borderline personality disorder and early abuse and neglect is very strong, leading to the view that borderlines, in fact, suffer from an untreated form of childhood post-traumatic stress disorder. Abuse and neglect. The lack of attachment, of being loved. Update on the Windows computer. Fantastic. Now, as a result of this, Baron Cohen writes, borderlines rage at those they love. When people say it is a thin line between love and hate, in borderlines, that thin line becomes infinitesimal. They will say quite openly that the empty feelings cause a terrible emotional pain and depression, and they will tell you that the impulsive behaviors, the drinking, the drugs, self-mutilation, sexual promiscuity, binge eating, gambling, or suicide attempts, are all just to get some brief relief in a desperate attempt to feel something, anything rather than fill the emptiness. This feeling of emptiness leaves them with a lack of core identity. We've got really extreme examples here of, of behavior patterns that very well could be an expression of a lack of knowing they are loved. Does that make sense? Opioid addiction, borderline personality. And if you're standing here like me, Maybe you don't have these problems, and you're saying, well, that's only for those who are in extremities. I would submit to you that it's even more dangerous for those of us who have things, quote-unquote, all together. Borderline personality and opioid addictions are extreme examples of behavior rooted in brokenness that stems from the unfulfilled need to be known and be loved. But that doesn't limit the truth of the matter. 
the 19th uh, Surgeon General of the United States, Vice Admiral uh, Vivek H. Murthy, served from 2014 to 2017. And he identified one of the most lethal health crises in America today, the epidemic of loneliness. The Surgeon General wrote this. We live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, yet rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. Today, over 40% of adults in America report feeling lonely. Today, over 40% of adults in America report feeling lonely. And research suggests that the real number may be higher. The number of people who report having a close confidant in their lives has been declining over the past few decades. During my tenure as U.S. Surgeon General and in my years of caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. The elderly man who came to our hospital every few weeks seeking relief from chronic pain was also looking for human connection. He was lonely. The middle-aged woman battling advanced HIV who had no one to call to informed that she was sick. She was lonely too. Murthy says, I found that loneliness was often in the background of clinical illness, contributing to disease and making it harder for patients to cope and heal. Loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction of lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and even greater than that associated with obesity. Loneliness is also associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression, and anxiety. At work, loneliness reduces task performance, limits creativity, and impairs other aspects of executive function as reasoning and decision-making. For our health and our work, it is imperative that we address the loneliness epidemic quickly. St. Mother Teresa. The biggest disease today is not leprosy or cancer. It's the feeling of being uncared for, unwanted, of being deserted, and alone. Made to be known and to know. Made to be loved and to love. What happens when those things are not filled out in us? We die early. Our behavior is expressed we, as we seek affirmation, as we seek love. Our behavior can lead us into a downward spiral of morality. We have to live in brokenness. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. So what can be done? Certainly, those who suffer from borderline personality disorder, certainly those who suffer from addiction, they need professional help. And we never want to be a people who tells uh, those who suffer from addiction or personality disorders to stop taking their medicine, to stop going to meetings. We want to pray for healing over them. And we want to encourage them to continue to seek all the help that they can get. And these are admittedly extreme examples. But from them, I think that we can see the absolute necessity for people to be in relationship, to, for people to be connected, for people to be known, to be loved, and not just by other people, but by God in whose image we are made. In fact, Vivian Percy, back in uh, the book Saving Jenny, Vivian Percy writes this, Perhaps no one is willing to say it, but the only cure for what ails us is love. 
And the bottom line is that without enough love, which is the only antidote to evil, and without protection and safety from abandonment, betrayal, and abuse at any age, but especially in the young, we lose our minds. She goes on, I'm only an agnostic, but from what I have seen, I strongly suspect that if Jenny were able to think of herself as a child of God, be persuaded that she is not all alone in this world and have faith that there is a higher power of love, goodness, and light that is stronger than anything that may seek to prevail against her, then she might be less inclined to do such horrible, self-destructive things to herself. Vivian Percy is aimed in the right direction, but she's not specific enough. Fundamentally, what we need, what broken people of all walks of life need is to know and be known, to love and be loved by the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here is something that we need to remember ourselves. This is something that we need to help others to see, understand, and know with their hearts the center of their being. We are objectively known by God, whether we subjectively feel it or not. That is to say that God has declared he knows us, and as God has declared it, it is so. And perhaps one of the best things that we can say to one another is, you are known by God. You are known by God. Oh God, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. As created and dependent human beings, we are known by God. And this is not some abstract notion. God is not some impersonal force. He is not the goosebump. We must reject a Star Wars theology if we are to be used by God to help others. The God of the universe, the king of all creation, is a personal being, and he relates personally to his creation. He knows those whom he has created, and there is not a single person in this world for whom he is not ultimately responsible. He is the creator, and thus he is the knower. Just think about that for just a second. You are known by God. As I take a sip of my deliciously lukewarm coffee, think about that. You are known by by God. And if, if Jenny had known that she was known by God, not saying that that would have stopped all of the destructive behaviors, but how quickly could she come out of them? She is known by God. That wasn't lukewarm, it was cold. And as, ma as amazing as that is, God, the knower, is also the one who loves perfectly. We're built to be known, and God knows. We are built to be loved, and God loves. 
He loves his creation. He loves the people of his creation, and he welcomes us to be known by him. He welcomes us to be loved by him as the good father. As if Chris Tomlin needs my critical comments regarding his song, I do take objection. I, I, I think we need to change the lyrics to his song. He is not a good, good father. He is the good, good father. I apologize to Chris Tomlin if he ever hears this, this, this talk. God is the father. The creator is the father. The knower is the lover as a father. St. Paul, writing in the 8th chapter of his letter to the Romans, states, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he didn't say you must bow down and perform all sorts of wondrous acts and then address him as, oh, mighty, omnipotent deity far removed. He said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. Debatable about whether he used the King James or not. <laughs> Through the Trinitarian act of adoption, the king of all creation becomes father, and those who are adopted into the family are loved as children. You are known by God, and you, in Jesus Christ, are loved by the Father. Adoption is no measly thing. Adoption is the greatest thing. John Murray calls it the apex of grace and privilege. In the triune act of adoption, the Father adopts through the Son and the Holy Spirit. Men and women become children of God in a very real a very positional and a very objective sense. It is so because God has declared it to be so in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And that's regardless of whether you feel it or not. God has spoken it. God has done it. It is objective. In his loving kindness, in his grace, God grants a new status to those who believe in Jesus the Son. The Father calls them children. And through the Son, as this new reality is given, this new objective status in God's family, conscious awareness of it and the exercise of the privileges inherent to it are raised up by the sealing Holy Spirit. This is adoption into the life of the Trinity. Elder brother Jesus Christ, our Father, filled with the Spirit, Adopted to the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit, believers in Jesus are elevated to a status that is almost too great to consider. Made to be known and to know. Made to love and to be loved. All of those things are fulfilled fundamentally, primarily in the Creator and the Lover. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's healing in simply beginning to understand the objective reality of the status of a child of God in Jesus Christ. Healing begins there in our identity. Healing begins there in our spiritual status. Healing begins with the love of the Father, the one who knows us. Like Jesus, believers can approach God is Father, praying to Him as Jesus prayed to our Father who art in heaven, praying to the Creator King, 
who is there and who is in charge, who is, as J.I. Packer says, awesome, holy, and transcendent. This God stoops down in love to lift us up from the gutter, so to speak, bring us into his family, gives himself to us in unstinting fellowship, and thus enriches us forever. This Father is free from all limitations. This Father is free from all inadequacies. This Father is free from all the flaws that are found in earthly parents. There is no better Father, no parent more deeply committed to his children's welfare, or more wise and generous in promoting it than God the Creator. And here's the thing. We are objectively sons and daughters of the Father, Because he has done it. Because he has made us sons and daughters to the Son in the Spirit. I can no more make myself a son of the Father, the creator of all that is, than I could, prior to my conception in the womb of my mother, declare that I was going to be born to the Miller family in Lyons, Kansas. Something done on my behalf. It isn't about what we feel. It isn't subjective or dependent upon our feeling or our emotions of being loved. It is far more significant than that. It is a bedrock, a foundational aspect. We are loved by God. We are children of God in Jesus Christ. And we are known by Him. There's something healing, something settling in being known and being loved. There is something that fills in the holes, that sweeps out the corners, so to speak. And it's not just for those who suffer abandonment. This is for everyone. I, have, I had a wonderful relationship with my parents. I continue to have a wonderful relationship with my parents. I was never abandoned. And yet, I still need to know the love of the Father who is in heaven. Satan and sin and sickness conspire and collude to keep us. All of us, even those with healthy parental relationships, from knowing the Father. And so this is for everyone. And I think we'll hear more about that from Ethan and Lindsay. Ethan's going to step back to the computer. We're going to watch a little movie clip here for a second. As I conclude this morning, how important is it to know that we are known and loved by the Father? Incredibly important. How important is it to know what the Father thinks about you and about me? How important is it to know what the Father speaks out over us? We're going to watch a clip from Mr. Holland's opus. And in this clip, there's a young woman. Uh, yeah, pull the, go ahead and pull the lights down. There's a young woman who has been struggling mightily with trying to learn how to play the clarinet. And Mr. Holland, her music teacher, has been... Uh, doing lessons with her, trying to help her become a better clarinet player. And here we pick up, she's late for her lesson. Watch and listen to what they have to say. Go ahead, Ethan. clarinet here the other day. Yeah, um, if you know anyone who wants it, well, I, I'm giving up the clarinet. I, 
I'm just I'm just goofing everybody else up anyway. So um, I just wanted to say thanks. Thanks for trying. Is it any fun? I wanted it to be. You know what we've been doing wrong, Miss Lang? We've been playing the notes on the page. Well, what else is there to play? Well, there's a lot more to music than notes on a page. These guys, for example. Now, they can't sing, and, and they have absolutely no harmonic sense, and they're, they're playing the, the same three chords over and over again. I love it. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why? I don't know. Yeah, you do. Because it's fun? That's right. Because playing music is supposed to be fun. It's about heart. It's about feelings and... <laughs> moving people and something beautiful and being alive and it's not about notes on a page i could teach you notes on a page i can't teach you that other stuff do me a favor pick up your clarinet and play with me okay and this time no music oh what? because you already know it it's already in your head and your fingers and your heart. You just don't trust yourself to know that. Okay. Here we go. Ready? One, two, three, four. Okay, let's do it again. And this time, not so much lip on the mouthpiece. Okay. One, two, three, four. Oh. All right, no, 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 don't do that. Let me ask you a question. What? When you look in the mirror, what do you like best about yourself? My hair. Why? Um, my father always says that it reminds him of a sunset. Play the sunset. Close your eyes. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Don't stop playing.
comes into the room with the inability to play the right tune. She can't hit the notes. Technically, she's got too much lip on the, on the mouthpiece. She's got a mental block. She thinks she can't do it. But what frees her to play the music? What frees her to play the tune? Simply remembering what her father spoke over her. What's your favorite thing about yourself when you look in the mirror? My hair. Why? My dad says it reminds him of the sunset. How important is it to know what the father thinks about you and me? How important is it to know what the father speaks over us? In his book, Calvin on the Christian Life, Michael Horton writes, Because we are united to Christ, we enjoy the same privileges, favor, and access to the Father as Christ does. And I wonder if we can take this one step further. Not only can we speak to the Father as the Son speaks to the Father, but can we say that in Jesus, as adopted sons and daughters, that the Father speaks over us as He speaks over the Son? There are three places in the New Testament where Jesus hears and people also hear the word of God, the Father, to the Son. In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, at baptism, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In Luke chapter 9, verse 35, at the transfiguration, this is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then John chapter 12, verse 28, while Jesus is in the temple, he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In two of these scriptures, God affirms the identity of the Son. In two of these scriptures, God affirms his love of the Son, calling Jesus beloved at the baptism and chosen at the transfiguration. And in two of these cases, God affirms what Jesus is doing. With you, I am well pleased. And in John, God responds to Jesus' request for affirmation of what God will do. Reflecting on these passages, Pete Gregg writes, it seems to me, in the absence of any other evidence, these three exchanges alone tell us all we need to know about the unconditional affection and affirmation within the heart of the Trinity and consequently the relentless love of the Father towards all of us as his children. His priority is relationship. His default is kindness. When you look in the mirror, do you know that in Jesus Christ, the Father says, you are my beloved son? That in Jesus Christ, the Father says, you are my beloved daughter? That in Jesus Christ, the Father says, you I have chosen? The relentless love of the Father. Adopted to the Father through the Son and in the Holy Spirit, you are the object of God's relentless love. And he doesn't just love you, folks. He's actually quite fond of you. John W. Fountain is a professor of journalism at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He was formerly a national correspondent for the New York Times. 
This is a testimony that he gave in the NPR series, This I Believe. I believe in God. Not that cosmic, intangible spirit in the sky that Mama told me as a little boy always was and always will be. But the God who embraced me when Daddy disappeared from our lives, from my life at age four, the night police led him down the stairs, away from our front door, in handcuffs. The God who warmed me when we could see our breath inside our freezing apartment, when the gas was disconnected in the dead of another wind-whipped Chicago winter, and there was no food, little hope, and no hot water. The God who held my hand when I witnessed boys in my hood, swallowed by the elements, by death, and by hopelessness, who claimed me when I felt like no man's son, amid the absence of any man to wrap his arms around me and tell me everything's going to be okay, to speak proudly of me, to call me son. I believe in God, God the Father embodied in his son Jesus Christ, the God who allowed me to feel his presence, whether by the warmth that filled my belly like hot chocolate on a cold afternoon, or that voice whenever I found myself in the tempest of life's storms, telling me, even when I was told I was nothing, that I was something, that I was his, and that even amid the desertion of the man who gave me his name and DNA and little else, I might find in him sustenance. I believe in God, the God who I have come to know as Father, as Abba, Daddy. It wasn't until many years later, standing over my father's grave for a conversation long overdue, that my tears flowed. I told him about the man I had become. I told him about how much I wished he had been in my life. And I realized fully that in his absence I had found another. Or that he, God the Father, God my Father, had found me. Simon Baron Cohen, in his book on the erosion of empathy, Ethan, can we turn the lights back on? Cites the work of John Bowlby, who's a psychoanalyst and a child psychiatrist in London. He developed what Baron Cohen refers to as the e internal pot of gold theory, connected to the role of the parent in the life of a child. What the caregiver gives their child in those first few critical years is like an internal pot of gold. The idea, which builds on Freud's insight, is that what a parent can give his or her child by way of filling the child up with positive emotions is a gift more precious than anything material. That internal pot of gold is something the child can carry inside him or her throughout their life. It is what gives the individual the strength to deal with challenges, the ability to bounce back from setbacks, and the ability to show affection and enjoy intimacy with others in other relationships. And I wonder, can we connect Bowlby's idea of an internal pot of gold with the experience and knowledge of the love of God the Father? If knowing the love of the parents creates a pot of gold within the individual, gives value, dignity, worth, fullness rather than emptiness, peace instead of pain, what about knowing the relentless love of the Father? What about knowing our identity as adopted and loved children to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit? An internal pot of gold, so to speak, given by the triune God, the Father who through Jesus and in the Holy Spirit says, you are my child and I love you and I know you. Can this begin then to fill in the holes in our souls? Can knowing the relentless love of the Father 
fill in this internal pot of gold and bring affirmation and confirmation, bringing dignity and value and worth, healing and fullness rather than emptiness, peace instead of pain. We all have a deep yearning to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. On the deepest level of our beings, this yearning is focused on God. And without knowing the love of the Father, something in us is askew. We need an internal pot of gold given from the Father. We need to be praying that we would know the relentless love of the Father. And when we pray for others, we need to be praying that they would know the relentless love of the Father. Perhaps that is then the foundation stone of healing prayer. Perhaps that then is the foundation stone of intercessory prayer. That the one for whom we are praying would know the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit, that they are known and loved. Perhaps that is the deepest need in our current cultural context. This morning, as we prepare to take a short break, as this time together comes to an end, let's just hear again from God's Word. From Isaiah chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray for us from your very word that we would fear not, for we have been redeemed by you. That we have been called by you. That we are yours. Father, may we know your love. May we know, Lord, deep within us, through the witness of the Holy Spirit, to the reality of the sacraments and the means of grace you have appointed, that you are the one who knows us and who loves us. Fill in us, Lord, this internal pot of gold that when we look in the mirror, we may hear your words. Being healing, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. We pray this for Jesus' glory. We pray this. Amen. Let's take 10 minutes. I have 10.01 on my watch. We'll come back together at 10.11 and uh, begin again.